Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Paul Mercurio is seen every night by audiences of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert as he warms them up before the CBS cameras turn on for taping. Mercurio graduated from law school and started out on Wall Street, though, before ever discovering his passions for comedy and getting a big break by selling a joke to Jay Leno. Mercurio has known Colbert for more than two decades, as he was one of the original writers hired for The Daily Show with Craig Kilborn back in 1996. Along the way, he's won an Emmy and a Peabody. He also played a role in a notorious live radio stunt by Opie and Anthony. He's now got a new off-Broadway show a couple of blocks away from his day job on Broadway called Permission to Speak with Paul Mercurio, where he interacts with the audience to engage in their stories. But first, he gave permission to speak to me and tell me some of his own stories. So let's get to it! Um... So, permission to speak? Yes, sir. You have permission to speak. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Macario, um, thanks for having me to one of your first shows yeah. of the Off-Broadway Run, yeah. which is conveniently located just a few blocks down from your day from job. The Late Show. At The Late Show with Stephen yeah, Colbert. Right. On Broadway, too, so it's cool. So, last things first. How many years have you been performing for Colbert's audiences at this point? Oh, it's uh, three, maybe two. Maybe ooh, eight, maybe like four. I didn't do the whole run at the Colbert Report, but the combined Colbert Report and oh, then the yeah, Late we're Show. In our third season now, I guess at the Late Show, so it'd be like um, yeah, eight, maybe nine. Yeah. And at what point in the in the run did you realize that your role talking with the audience before Colbert comes out? At what point did you realize that thing that comes before the thing that could be the actual thing? Well, I never feel, and I still don't feel like it's the thing. The thing is the show. Now, I have people say to me, hey, that was really Mm -hmm. more fun. I've seen warm-ups and more fun than I thought I'd have in a warm-up. Usually, it's just kind of this whatever. Um, But the talking to them is the only thing I can think of that can work. Because, I mean, you know, you you can't do stand-up in a warm-up situation. There's too much stuff going around. They're not focused the way they need to be focused. Like in a comedy club, there's a reason it's dark and there's a spotlight so that people can focus on the spoken word. Um, but this this thing is like, you know, you just got to... And, and in a warm-up, you've got to do three things at once. you got to get them understanding that they're not just there to watch TV like they do at home because they're participating. They're the laugh track. You've got to get them super excited so that their energy comes through the screen. Mm-hmm. And you got to get them laughing so they laugh at the jokes because they'll tell you like an and I've been on the other side of that when I've had my own shows like you don't want them just cheering like a Price is Right crowd you want them <laughs> laughing at the jokes and I've, I've been to tapings where that's all they really care about is right and it's like and it's like but you're with the note you're going to get back from the people you're doing it for is like well they were excited and amped up but they weren't laughing at the jokes or they're laughing at the jokes but they weren't amped up amped up so it's like uh, it's like um it's a it's a it's three things have to happen really quickly. So that's the best way for me to do it. And then from that kind of evolved, in, that, that evolved over time, and then into this, that, and my stand up where I talked. Right. So I guess I'm wondering, was there a point, was there a night in particular on the on the stage at the Ed Sullivan Theater where you're you're bringing audience members up and you're going, hey, I wonder if I could just pull this off 
no, for an hour, hour and a half. Somebody, somebody had seen it. A couple of people saw it, producers, mm. and said, we've never seen anybody like, we see improv and we see guys do crowd work that leads into bits, but mm. they're just like, just bring people up and talk about their lives and just whatever. We haven't seen that before. And do you, do you do that all the time? And then they asked me if the people were plants and they're like, no, they're not plants. They was, I couldn't call ahead and say, you know, I need a, you know, I need a, you know, a, a, a person who's got two kids but doesn't really happy seem to be happy being a mom. You know right. what we saw tonight. It's just you. Everybody has a story and you listen and you respond. But no, like I, I mean, I did. I did get. I have been getting people saying to me, especially when I'm doing stand up, like, because sometimes I'll do it like for a good amount of time before I get into my jokes and when I'm headlining. Well, you could do the whole show like that, but I never really took it mm -hmm. seriously. But the idea, I guess, was in the back of my mind. So then this came up. I'm like, yeah, maybe I could do the whole show like that. What do you find? It's obviously a different dynamic from regular crowd work because yeah. you bring once you take them out of their seat and bring them on stage. Yeah, it changes. Yeah, that's the focus. It. it changes how they act. Well, I wanted to break up the form. Like mm -hmm. stand up to me has gotten. I love doing it, but it's sort of boring in the sense of like you go up, you tell your jokes, they leave, and there's this group of people and it just seems so compelling to me to start talking to them. And I'm like, well, let me experiment with the form. Why, why, do, I, can, why do I have to just talk to them to set up my jokes? Why do I have to just talk to them and they're being in their seats? Why can't they come on stage? Why can't I bring more than one person <laughs> on stage? Why can't I bring up five people at a time? Why can't I have one person talk to another person? So I feel like from a creative standpoint, like it's a way to kind of play with the whole format mm -hmm. form and like, you know, kind of, you know. An audience member asked you tonight what you get out of it. Yeah. Do you, do you feel upon reflection that, that you do get a lot more out of it than you perhaps thought or? Yeah, I do. I mean, when I, when, you know, when people sort of make a connection because they're opening themselves up up there, mm -hmm. I kind of think that's like a good thing. You know, the theme of the show because this is not a stand-up show, it's a theater show, and I w wanted it to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and a theme, and it's sort of like, you know, talking, opening up, and connecting, and then maybe some good stuff can happen from that. I don't want it to be too preachy, like, oh, you know, I'm gonna everybody hold hands and change the world, right. but, like, there's definitely a satisfaction that comes from somebody, like, revealing something about themselves. Like, that guy who talked about playing the piano and how, like, you could see in his eyes, like, what playing the piano does for him he looked like an italian jim parsons yeah <laughs> sheldon from the big bang that's hilarious <laughs> but yeah. italian yeah exactly well kind of like him mixed with uh, mr bean yeah yeah yeah, yeah. exactly rowan atkinson i always forget that mr bean is not his name it's rowan atkinson oh that's so funny um but uh, but yeah like so and so you get these like cool moments and mm -hmm. sort of weird moments and everything in between you know now when you were a kid in providence training to go to law school mm. <laughs> was there something about the law that appealed to you that in that same way that you thought you can connect with people or why i definitely like people and talking and mm -hmm. debating and whatever so i do think there's like a strand of thread of some kind between uh this is my i they're taking me back to the <laughs> to the house now to the big house i'm an ex we are, and we I'm are on broad it's an off-broadway show on, on broadway we're on broadway baby i don't fool around that's uh they're arresting <laughs> at me the, at my the, act is so bad they're arresting at me. the top of times square so yeah, we're exactly. in the heart um, of it all uh no um 
But what was the idea then when you were... It was to just be a lawyer. I grew up in a regular middle-class family. Like, nobody thought about going into entertainment. So it was like, when my parents like, go to college, you know, mm-hmm. be a lawyer, be a doctor, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, like, it just was, like, that kind of thing. And so I do think anything that connects me with people, like, sort of, I like and sort of... I like talking. I like sort of debating. Like I just like all of that stuff. So the was it was it the idea that okay, well I get to to talk with a jury, talk. I get to perform for this audience. Was yeah. that part of it for you? You mean as a lawyer? To be a lawyer. Yeah. Well, I didn't do litigation. I did corporate so. law, but we negotiate. But we would negotiate. Okay. And it was. Um, I think it was a little bit of that. It's just also like I like sort of the layers of thinking that you do as a lawyer. Like you sort of break stuff down and stuff like that. You know. And then uh, the chicks, you know, you get laid all the time when you're a lawyer, you know. Oh, it's all the time, all the time. That's what mergers and acquisitions means, right? right? Exactly. There's a merger and then something happens and they are acquired. You know, it's like, it's sort of like, I just think there is a relationship between what I do and what I did do in Mm -hmm. terms of like, I couldn't be like a guy in the back room, like not interacting with people. I can't walk into a room and like not talk to people. I can't walk on stage and not talk to people. So tell me about the night that you saw Jay Leno perform. Yeah, yeah. I mean, was, I was that was that just a regular gig that you were going to? Or? No, no. I was working as a lawyer, and I got invited to this big fancy. Was it? Was it a corporate? corporate it was a corporate. He was that, doing a corporate gig. Yeah, and I and our firm was invited, and mm-hmm. I went. And I watched him, and I handed him some, you know, jokes and. Said I'm a so, fan. To, so to, how much thought went into that? Not a lot. I mean, I was writing jokes as a hobby. I don't mm-hmm. know what I thought. I just thought, I don't like, know why. Like, I don't know why I wanted to Did you to think, it. like, as soon as they said Jay Leno's going to perform, that you're like, oh, I'm going to write some jokes no, for him? No, I so had, what? no. I had been writing jokes. I, right. I made short films, one of them going to the Aspen Comedy Festival. Like, I had been on this path, and I just kept telling myself, well, I'm just going to... You know, mm-hmm. I'm just going to do this for a while. And then, you know, it's just be like playing golf, a hobby. I'm a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. Right. right. And then uh, and then I had these jokes written out and I wasn't going to go that night because I was busy. And then I decided, ah, fuck it, I'll go. And I just printed my jokes out. And I thought, well, what the hell? You when, know. How did you decide when to go up to, to him? After, after the show? After his done, he was done, he was doing a, like a meet and greet with me. Mm-hmm. I just went up and I waited in line and I went up and I said, uh, Big fan, been a big fan of yours since, you know, watch on Letterman and all that stuff. And don't know if you need jokes. I got these jokes. I'm never going to use them. You can have them. He's like, okay. <laughs> and he called me the next day. The very next day? Yeah, like two days later. And he okay. called me and he was staying in the New York area. And he read them. He goes, I read your jokes. I think they're pretty good. So I hired you to send the jokes for the Tonight Show monologue. And uh, and I was like, what? And I don't, by the way, I thought it was my friend joking with me who does impressions and it wasn't really Jay Leno. And I actually said to him, yeah, really funny. You do a lousy Jay Leno. And I said that to Jay Leno. And he's like, no, I think I do it pretty good. I'm like, no, you do a lousy Jay Leno. And then a few days later, he called me and he did one of my jokes on The Tonight Show. And it just played me. He only paid did, me 50 bucks for the joke and it blew my head off my shoulder. Did he, he tell you me. ahead of time that it was going to happen? Call me, okay. Because yeah, I think he knew I'd get it right. exciting for me. And back in the day, you couldn't just uh, TiVo it or on the man. No, was, so we got a bottle of champagne, my girlfriend and I, and we... Random apartment, see some friends. Did you record it or? No, I didn't. I I wish I did. And because uh, this is what this is early like, mid nineties. Uh, yeah, but I just you know mm-hmm. I was at a friend's apartment, and it was surreal. Like this box that I had been watching my whole life of comedy, out of it came something that I wrote. So I think it was that creative spark happened where I created something out of thin air, mm-hmm. and people reacted to it, and I was like, whoa, that was incredible. So then, at that point in the mid nineties. Were you part of the facts? 
list or yeah, how, how did it yeah mid to late 90s really yeah yeah like you email stuff in fax or whatever and there's like early stages of emailing and you like just if he used it he paid you mm-hmm. it was on an honor system and right. he paid you 50 bucks a joke and I had the first check that he ever gave me I kept it and you copied it and framed it and stuff nice. like that. Yeah, it was like just like a restaurant. Yeah, or a small exactly. Business. Exactly. As I stick it up on the bar <laughs> with a pin, and uh, yeah, it was like crazy. He was doing my joke on TV, man. It was like it was the same feeling I had when my short film um, got into the festival, and I went to this big movie theater, and they were screening my film that day with other films, and my name in the film was up there. It's like holy shit! Like this is the thing where other people's stuff has been up there. So I think it was like I was working in a job where you weren't. It was created, but in a different way. Like you were, um, you were executing mm-hmm. things, like executing deals, as opposed to creating something. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that was a real, like, I think, in looking back now, was the thing that really sparked me. What was your last day at the firm like? Well, you know, <clears throat> I left, and uh, they said, "Get out." Uh, <laughs> it couldn't happen soon enough. No, I. It was weird because I, I left, took a leave of absence because my father died and I tried to go home to help run the family furniture business and I was really torn oh, if I should. in like, Providence? Yeah. And, but I couldn't do that because my mother's insane and like you can't work, like, you know, she's 90 now, but like you're always a child in your parents' eyes and so you couldn't, I couldn't like. But there was a moment when you thought you might just be running the take, family yeah, furniture I thought, business. Because I was too afraid to make the decision to go into comedy full time. So I, I ran away and up to Rhode Island and right. told my, this is what I'm supposed to How do. How long did you do that for? Yeah, it was like six months or so. But it was crazy. Like she was locked. She locked customers in the store. She can't hear and forget they're in the store. She locked the customer in the store for like four hours one time. She's not ever, like, she thinks it's funny. The woman took a nap on the sofa though. And then the woman bought the sofa. My mother wasn't even in the fucking store. Like, so I couldn't, like, I couldn't even yell at my mother. She goes, I made a sale and I wasn't in the store. So like, <laughs> but you can't, like I'm doing M&A deals and now I'm running errands to get her coffee. Like she was right. not going to give over responsibility. So I had to make the tough decision that I was trying to avoid. I was really afraid, scared to leap into the pool and give up all the security that I had. And I was hemming and hawing, and I was asking everybody advice. And then I finally did it. And I unraveled my life and I moved to a rooming house in New Rochelle to save money and sold my apartment and everything that I owned. And like within three months, I was really miserable as a comic because I was working these shithole dive bars and it was just terrible. And, uh, but that's what it's like for most I, people. Yeah, and I, and then it's like, not glamorous. It's not a, exactly. you don't get beginner's and, no, luck. Exactly. And I got audited by the IRS because they thought I, and then long story short, I got so scared that I let, gave up too much that I went back to Wall Street and gave up comedy. And then I swore off comedy. And then three months later, I was back telling jokes like an alcoholic with a free <laughs> drink. And then I said, I got to go do this. Obviously, there's something inside of me that's right. saying you got to do it. And then I quit again. And I, and I stuck with it since then. So it was not... What was it about that last time you quit that you were like, okay, this time... Well, because it was clear to me at that point that it sort of was something that I wasn't going to like just put away in a mm-hmm. shelf, on a shelf. Like it was like, so it was like, why keep trying to pretend you don't want to do this and just do it and don't have any regrets? Well, that time worked out for you because it wasn't much more than a year or two after that when when the Daily yeah, Show happened. Years. Yeah, I got on the Daily Show uh, and then... But that, you were a part of the original... Yeah, yeah, so writers, yeah. So you didn't know what you were even getting yourself into, no, did you? No, none of us did. We were just writing what did they to write. What did they pitch it? What, what was the show pitched to you as? It's a topical news comedy parody show kind of thing. Hosted by Craig Kilborn. And Liz Winstead was mm-hmm. the one that brought me in. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, she... How did you know Liz? Just from stand-up around the city. But I was still new. Like, I 
I was not like an established comic or anything like that. Yeah, and so how did you impress I don't know, I Liz? wrote some stuff and she liked it and she liked my stand-up in the clubs and stuff, mm -hmm. so we kind of hit it off, so... But yeah, it was like a wild, wild west. We were just trying shit and getting in trouble, getting yelled at because we crossed the line and doing, like, you know, like doing appropriate, saying, like, writing inappropriate jokes and stuff. Right. Like, we did a Monica Lewinsky joke where she said, we said she, uh, she's getting endorsements from different products now because now that she's, you know, got celebrity. And one of them was from the milk industry, and we put him, had him do a cum shot on her face and said they got milk at the bottom of it. People forget that the first version of The Daily Show was different yeah. from John yeah, Stewart or, yeah, or, yeah. It wasn't or now it Trevor was, Noah. It wasn't that it wasn't smart. It was, no, it's just different. It, it was, was just like we kind of it, pushed it, the envelope, and then, we get, then they would pull us back. It wasn't quite political. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it was would be at times, but it, it was, wasn't. It was more, yeah. It was, it was more it was, of a. It, was, it, was fo it would focus on politics, but it also focused on pop culture and other stuff. Yeah, right. you're right. And then it, then it kind of, John just sort of, you know, crystal. Right, because especially like the correspondent pieces were more like just out there stories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like you'd find some. I don't know, weird guy like, running for mayor in some yeah. town and then, you know, whatever. Like or, you know, like, and then, yeah, but like, there was also politics and then we'd cover big mm -hmm. elections and stuff like that. But yeah, it was great because, like, we were like kids in the basement with a chemistry set and we'd blow stuff up and then get yelled at by the president of the network for going too far. <laughs> like, he yelled at us for that and pulled the show, you know, because we. Yeah, because they said we can't re-air that show. Because we held the picture back so the people in the stands of the practice wouldn't see it. My goodness. Yeah, it was crazy. So, yeah. So what was it like for you when, when it, the changeover happened with Stuart? Because you, cause you still wrote some stuff with Stuart's version. Yeah, I was still there with John writing, and then it was good, you know. Did you that, feel like that was a was a benefit for you because it was more in your yeah, wheelhouse? Yeah, I think so. Of, yeah, you know, I think so. It was in also... It was more divisive. It got. It was getting more divisive in the country, which is actually better for comedy. So, like politically, you know, a few years before that, it was like, yeah, you know, it was okay, you know, but it was nothing crazy going on. And then it just got more and more heated between the two sides, and so you could really feel like you were making comments and saying something, and maybe somebody was going to listen. So it felt like you were doing comedy that also made a difference a little bit. You know what I mean? Right. And uh, I mean the kind of stuff that gets you a Peabody. Yeah, it was crazy, man. We were we were at the Waldorf, and we're I'm I'm like hammered at the Waldorf in a suit, and I'm sitting around on a big table with Comedy Central people, and there's like uh, Tom Brokaw and Dan Rather and us. Like, what are we doing here? But yeah, it was pretty. Right, the Emmys pretty, are the glamorous award. The Golden Globes are the party award. Yeah, but the Peabody is the prestige award. They say it's a Pulitzer Prize for broadcast journalism. Right. That's what they say. I mean, you know, I don't know. I melted mine down and sold it for forty bucks. So no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, uh, Did Opie and Anthony put you up to that? Oh yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> my pals Opie and Anthony. I was just on Anthony's show today. Yeah, Anthony. Oh, at the compound. Yeah, at the compound. Yeah. Well, how do you go from how do you go from from working for John Stewart? Mm. To doing stunts with Opie and Anthony. Because, you know, we're just, is we're that comics. just. Yeah, I mean, John's a comic, you know what I mean? It's not like right. I was working for fucking, like, the Pope. Like, John's a stand up comic, and right. he's hosting a show that, you know, some people have created, and, like, still a comic. We're comics, right? And so you go do these things, and you also want to get people to come out and see your shows, and so. They were but like, were oh. you were you. So. Were you lacking in excitement, or. In my or, life? Yeah. No, no, to, you're a comic. You go. That was a big that, show, that, and you go on that show, and then 
your goal is to headline. Your goal is to put asses in the seats. Right. And then, so it's like I, and then, I want to appeal then, to everybody. And well, yeah, it's not to just play the comedy cellar, on, mm-hmm. you know, which is great, or let's stand up New York and 150 seats the rest of your life. Like it's to be a major headliner and tour around the country and maybe do theaters someday. Well, you have to expose yourself to people. Right. In the sense of like not literally like in the church, but like well, you know I mean, like, although I mean, right. although that people, was why do people go on Howard Stern? Why do people go on anything? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's like to get, and they had a big following, and we had a really good chemistry, and we liked each other, and I had fun on it. But then you know that just went too far, and I should have said no. I'm not going to go into it. But that is what it is. It's way in the past. I don't. Well, how did how did you get how did you get through that? I mean, um, people mostly focus on. What happened to them? What? Yeah, you know, I lost some gigs, and for a while, people were like, uh, you know, I was too radioactive, you know? Mm-hmm. And everybody tried to blame everybody else for like a few minutes, you know, and nobody wanted to own it. Nobody, including those guys in the. In the, in the, in the because that was pre satellite yeah, I mean, radio. I had, thre- I had to go after, I got arrested, I was in jail. I had to go threaten the, uh, I had to threaten the TV state, the radio station, because they weren't sending me a lawyer. I said, if you don't send me a lawyer, I'm going to tell everybody that there's video of a woman blowing her boyfriend in the studio just before the show, and the president of Sam Adams is standing there laughing. It's all on videotape. And it was, because it happened. Right. And he was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I go, yeah, what do you... Well, you know, I go, this is New York City, one of the biggest corporations in the world. There's 50 lawyers on retainer. You may be sitting in fucking jail all night for your stupid fucking content. Right, throw you under the bus. I mean, I'm owning it. I'm taking some responsibility for it. They approved of it. It wasn't done behind their back. That's where I feel like Opie and Anthony got screwed by the management. It's one thing if they did it and didn't tell anybody. It was the third year they were doing it. You don't cut your people loose like that. You own it. You take it. You take it. You, everybody gets hits in the, hit in the balls. Everybody takes the hit. You don't fucking like go, oh no, ugh, ugh. we have corporate whatever. So those guys got screwed and, you know, but we're all, you know, but anyway, everybody, everybody worked out. It all worked out fine for everybody. You know, in the end of the day. You just right. Had, How did it eventually work out for you? Like, was it I mean, it just time? Was, it was more of a blip, you know. I mean, people forgot about it after a while. You know, every August 15th, I'd get like a bunch of hate emails from three douchebag fucking Opie and Anthony fans that wanted to blame me for it, who like probably live in their parents' basement. Well, their fans were always, you know, horrible. Yeah, you know, like whatever. So, and I, and also like. The only they're not really fans that ultimately I really care about having anyway for right. what I do you know what I mean so I don't really feel like I miss much you know no and you know uh, I like going on Anthony's show he's a good friend and we hang out we have good chemistry together we always have so it's good for that you know what's your sense of because you work with Colbert so you work with prime you know work with one of the 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 the, the Tiffany Network uh, yeah right <laughs> I was trying to remember what they what they call the CBS network the, the, the Tiffany network the network um, <laughs> But then you you're also pals and you like do compound media, which is like the fringe, like mm. new, like yeah. the DIY media. Yeah. How do you how do you see the world now for comedy? You mean in terms in of terms of like what it's what it's like to just live and and make a living in comedy now? You mean is it difficult or do you mean how do you think it's different? Um, I think the social media part definitely like has added a component it's like an it's an x factor like and i think that's propelled some people who aren't really ready to be propelled and then uh, you know other people are judged based on their social media following when they shouldn't be mm-hmm. and so um i don't know that the stand-up's all that different you know what i mean it seems like you know maybe there's um more variety of comedy like a little more what i call quiet comedy a little less sort of you know big right 
but I don't know. Like, I feel like the core of it's still, like, if it's good comedy where it's revealing something and it's honest and it's open, then that's good, you know? Do you feel like if you were starting out now, then, like, making that leap from Wall Street mm. to comedy now, mm. do you feel like having podcasting and having YouTube and having all of these different mm. options available to you instead of playing those shitty one-nighters, yeah. do you feel like it would be more exciting or, or, or less depressing? To, well, to make that leap now? Only if those things were translating into something. Like if I'm doing like YouTube videos and seven people are watching, I could, that can get as debilitating as going to a bar and, and nobody's listening and a hooker's, you know, blowing guys mm. in the bathroom, which is places where I worked. I worked at a place where the hooker used to give me notes on my joke after the show, <laughs> like downtown in the Bowery. So like, I think if I... Would, she would have good stories in the show, though. She was like, oh, God. She'd be like, yeah, you know what I mean? I mean, I wanted to keep going, but there's time to do the show over. But we had, there was more to go with the last two people I had, especially. But I, um, I think it would... I think that could be equally frustrating in the sense of, like, if you don't feel like you're... If you don't feel like you're moving ahead, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And that's gauged by views and all that stuff. I think in some ways it's easier and in some ways it's harder. It's easier because there are more platforms to be exposed to, but it's harder because I think there's just, because of that, there's just more people trying it, right? Like, you don't have to go out to really do stand-up and be established as a stand-up, right? You can say you are and do some stuff on YouTube and not work the clubs and work your way up. Right. So in that way it's easier, and but it also can be hard. Right, there's a guy headlining in a few weeks across the street who's hosting he's headlining because he's host of a popular podcast yeah oh, that's yeah. his credit it is what it is yeah know? I mean you know I mean it is what it is so like that doesn't I'm not saying he's not good but like I feel like I feel like the guys that like and the women that like really do it like are the real deal mm -hmm. which I like like you go and you work like the 145 at the cellar for fucking three years and like had to battle through that and then you can do which is you know why doing my show here this this one man show I can do it because I've had those spots where you had to like talk to the people to get them to pay attention to you to do your jokes that's what I would do I talk to them make them pay attention then I do my jokes and it turned into this whole thing and I have and, and I have a skill set I think where nothing throws me and I've been in pretty much every situation I can think of as a performer so you know you're, you're built for this now you're ready for it you're like you're ready for something bigger you know what I mean that's not um, you know just in a stand up club so I think the, all that a lot of the pain that you go through is actually good you know what I mean I think it makes you better and I think you tend to sort of last longer than most people I know th I know this is very early in the run but where would you like to see where would you like to ideally take this show permission to speak uh i'd like to take it to the y like the 97 no, i'm just kidding uh i'd like to take it to the <laughs> people, club. The people in the rest of the world think of the y they think of the gym yeah, they don't exactly. think of the 92nd street y no i meant the gym that's what i meant i just want to take it to the gym um <laughs> but no, there is like, the 92nd street y i know exactly well i'd love to take it there for no, the I new york I'd Jews. Like to have it be like i'd like to have it be <laughs> a um you know just a really great run here now and then sort of build it and sort of have it run and then take it on the road too because you could take this on the road from city to city into any theater you want and 
the people your show is right there it's the people you know right. but with the whole trappings of the show and you know my set and everything else the set was designed by the set designer for the late show was Stephen Colbert oh, nice. and digital mapping is done by the company that does that so it's this really cool oh, the, yeah I th- I've and seen Colbert photos, I've seen late show yeah. do that every once in a and while and all those photos that showed up tonight on mm-hmm. the set were photos of people taken in the lobby so the idea was that literally you're in the show the people sitting in the audience are seeing themselves up there very nice so they have this theme throughout of like it's about people, people talking. It's about them, and I'm sort of the facilitator. So if we kind of build it and build it, keep it building. We get a nice week this week and, you know, keep going. And people come out who's out there, you know, and all that good stuff. I'd like it to sort of be a nice regular run for quite a while and then be fucking huge after that where I won't even talk to you or make eye contact with you. You know, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, no, it would be really great to just keep doing it for, in, you know, indefinitely, but... But uh, it, it's been, it's cool because it's like mine. This feels like, even though I headline, this really just feels like mine. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that, it's different. It's different and it's, it's, a, it's a meteor show. It's not just about a laugh a minute kind of thing. We want to sort of hit on some like stuff that's like real and like not just yeah. surface stuff, but also not have it feel like it's a, you know, it's a therapy show either, you know, because then that'll make everybody throw up. Well, I hope this didn't feel like anything no, like that know, either. Sure? Because obviously, as a journalist, this is what I, I love listening to people's stories. Yeah. So, yeah. Did so, you, Paul, like, did you think there were really cool stories yeah. tonight from some people? I, I did. So, yeah. And they'll tell it. And like, just even the way that people don't talk tells you something. Where they like won't kind of reveal a lot of that kind of whatever. So, right. I think that I do think that every night so far we've gotten really cool stuff. You know, last night we had a 67 year old couple who were into S and M. And I found that out within the first three minutes of the show. So, and you never know until you ask. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So. And I got their number, and I'm going to call you, and the four of us are going to get together. <laughs> well, then we better stop this. It's so, uh, exactly. thanks, thanks for sharing yeah, your man. story with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Really thanks, cool. Paul. It was fun. Great. Thanks, man. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Things first.